they had done in Igomi. Remember, Nigeria was a very large British colony. And it's extraordinary that back in 1918, 1920, companies were roaming all over Africa. And that would have been their only Western interest in Africa, was the products that could be extracted from the continent. Oil and gas was one of the products that could be found there. And the British were in charge. They owned Nigeria at that stage. So they were giving out permissions for exploration. And at one point in those early 20s, Shell had the full coverage of Nigeria as its exploratory concession. And over the years, it was able to pick... It abandoned, it abandoned, it didn't take up, it didn't take up, until it really focused on the Niger Delta. So other companies came along and might have picked up places they didn't want to develop, but it always had the lead in selecting the most developed area. So it focused on the Niger Delta. And indeed... In very recent times, the first oil was only found somewhere in the Delta, because Agoni's part of the Delta, it's not the whole Delta, in 1958. Uh, say 1960 was independence. So this was all settled before Nigeria got its independence. And therefore the story is very much recent history, because from 58 to 1990 isn't that long. So it's a very recent story and a one that can be tracked from a definite date until the Ogoni Bill of Rights came out. So a large part of that resource production would have happened in Sarawiwa's lifetime, like Shell was just beginning and getting underway when he was at primary school and when he was at secondary school. And his first booklet for Ogoni youth in 1968, which is only 10 years after the first oil, and he was only 25 at that time, had to do with shell and oil and what was happening to the returns that Agoni should expect. So he was very aware of it. And in fact, you know, sometimes I forget that this project has a very defined historical time, which isn't that long or that long ago. So Shell had the concession yes. to the exploration, started production yes. in Agoni yes. in 58. Yes. What started, what went wrong? What was the problem for the Ugoni with that arrangement? Yeah, well, he he was the one that could see the problems. First of all, farmland got affected because there was a lot of military dictatorships. Like, I went out in 1964, and that's the first military dictatorship happened. So that was only six years after the first oil had been discovered. So the country, for several, several, 13 military coups I lived through, many of them slightly benign. They weren't all horrendous. So most of the time, it was military dictatorships that were in place. So political development about anything was nil. The multinationals felt very free to go and do what they wanted. Because, interestingly enough, in 1964, I think it was, or even 62, the Nigerian government was not like the Irish government, which is zero to a hundred the Nigerian government said, we want 60% of the proceeds and you can have 40. We also want a state company to be in a joint venture with you. Ireland never asked for any of those things till today. 
So they were winning. Whatever they did with their winnings is another story, but Nigeria was benefiting. The Biafran War came into all of that too, from 66 to 1970 about. And Ken lived through all of that as well. So oil was really the cause. The reason Britain wouldn't let Biafra go, because if Biafra went, the oil fields went as well. So that's why that war was so significant. Meanwhile, the ordinary Agoni farmer, who was most often a woman, saw pipes being pushed through her land without ever being asked permission. Can I even look in your field the next? So really the farmers knew that the taking of their land and the putting of pipes right through villages with a people that had no conception much. They knew it was wrong, but they had no comeback because it was military, military, military. And they would claim that, and that's absolutely true as well, that the pipes leaked frequently. They also knew that they had to go out and get wood for their fires from the forest. And they had to go to a stream to get clean water. There was no such thing, even up to my time in the 90s. There was no running water. There was no gas cooker. There was nothing like that. Whereas all this, the gas was actually being flared and is still being flared today into the air because they want to get at the oil. So the the gas, Shell is able to say that the gas has no financial value for it. So it flares it off. And everywhere there's a well, there's a flare. And those flares go on night and day. So Sarawiwa kind of sensed himself that all of that was wrong. So in 1990, he formalised his thinking, the Ogoni Bill of Rights, and then he began to educate the people. But as he said somewhere, another little extract I used recently was about in a hall that was crammed to listen to him speaking, probably in 1992 or 93. He looked at the people and he knew that they already knew everything he was going to say. But what was wrong is they had no voice. They didn't speak English, most of them. Ogoni was a very minority language. They hadn't any people of significance in political places. And anyway, in political dictatorship, the politicians were a bit redundant. So he saw that he would become their voice, but he felt that they knew exactly what was wrong. Um, so what did he start to do about it? How did the campaign begin? He wrote the Ogoni Bill of Rights. Yeah. And what happened there? He's, he was an administrator and he had worked in government as well, but never been comfortable in it. But he knew how to do everything. So he started off by sending the Ogoni Bill of Rights to the government in place at the time. I think shortly after 1990. Now, one interesting thing, because every November, this is the month that we remember him, and each time I do some events, relation, and I get new insights. Even 18 years later, you get new insights. And this time, when I was going through the Ogoni Bill of Rights and reading his book very closely, A Month and a Day, which is a wonderful description of how he developed his thinking. Because he was a literary person, because he had brought out books in 89, and because it's a diplomatic gesture to invite writers to the USSR, to the US, to England, 
to talk about their writings as embassy to embassy. It's part of diplomatic relations. So he had lots of advantages to go and talk about his literature and Wallachinka. They would be brought as a kind of um, African writers, but usually through the diplomatic services. So you were telling me, Michelle, about what Ken did, you know, growing up primary schools into secondary, up mm. to 25, and he saw what had gone wrong yes. for the Ogoni witch. What did he choose to do about them? What's that story? When he went out to talk about his books in the various countries, he picked up that the environment was a big issue of the time. So he actually came back and wrote an addendum to the Ogoni Bill of Rights. That's just what I discovered this time round. You know, he did, that wasn't there the first time. He then got agreement to put in the addendum, and the addendum included the freedom to go to the international community to seek help. And he kind of took it on himself to be the person who led the Ogoni issue into the international community. He was coming across NGOs that were environment inclined. He was doing like I was doing. He was learning how to campaign, but he was learning to do it in kind of Western terms. Just like every one of us starts off, he hadn't a clue how to get going. And he had a very good friend in England called William Boyd, the author. And in common, they had the fact that William was born in Nigeria. And his father was actually the university doctor when Ken was in University of Ibadan. And he was drawn to William Boyd initially because he had read his book, A Good Man in Africa, and recognised William's father in the character of the book. And they seemed to have got on very well together. And he was talking to him about how would he ever start an international campaign and William Boyd introduced him to some of the big agencies. And again, his little extract is very interesting. Together, they rang up Greenpeace. And Greenpeace says, we don't work in Africa. And then they rang up Amnesty International. Amnesty said, anybody dead yet? <laughs> very cynical in the extract about... And he uses a wonderful phrase. He said he returned from that trip to London in cavernous despair and that's so much the experience of the man who has just wronged me now you know having come back from the doll feeling they got nowhere even after the 133 miles a walk you know that nobody would acknowledge the rightness of their position I don't know does he say where he got a chance to go to Geneva to the United Nations as a father he had been very responsible about the education of his children and he brought his children everywhere. And they had already been on a holiday in Geneva. And he had showed them the United Nations, as he had shown it to them in New York. You know, in the book written by his son, his son is very funny about that because they were sick to death of their father trailing them about here and there. And he recounts where the father was walking along and he happened to look into the glass window and saw the two sons making faces at their father behind. When was this ever going to stop, you know? So he says that he encountered the UN Conference on Human Rights, I think it was in 1992, and there would have been all groups dealing with the environment, with human rights and everything there, and he met there the Unrepresented Organising and Peoples 
organisation based in The Hague in Holland. And UNPO was a very small NGO, but a very, very good one. They were into minorities, particularly from the breakdown of communism. They had nothing much to do with Africa, but they were after all the little bits of Europe that were breaking up. But they were very, very able. So they became a forever friend of the Agoni and a forever friend of Sarawiwa. In fact, he was their chair for a while. And his second, Leda Mite, in more recent years, has been a chair. So that was one group that he met from which he learned how to deal with the UN system. And then he also met the body shop. And the body shop has an ethical bias, a purity of its beauty compounds, etc., etc. And even though he didn't personally meet Anita Roddick, he met some of the people at that workshop and at other workshops later on. So the body shop took on paying a lot of the money for the campaign in the West, in Europe and eventually in Japan and Australia and everything, just the benefit of their business. But they also certainly were very strong. So without William Boyd and without UNPO and without the body shop, they would have made no progress at all in the Western world. And why the Western world? Now I would understand that as well as getting a crack at a company's profits with boycotts and things like that, the reputation of the company is worth a lot of money too. So I think Shell is sensitive to reputation, not a bit sensitive to campaigning because or boycotts or anything. They help, they raise an awareness, but... It doesn't hit them so hard. From that then, other NGOs began to take up their cause. So here I was, going down to Ken's office in early 93, having heard about him, not, I didn't know any of that history at all, and saying, well, I have an NGO, (laughs) small lobby group, interested in your issue, I think. This was my first case, test case. So he said to me, what's their fax number in Brussels? I gave him the fax number and he said, well, we had the march in January, but we're having an ecumenical service in about four days' time. So I'm going to fax to them the material about that. Now, later on, I was to visit the office. So it was made up maybe of a director and maybe two other people. It was a very small office. And then I went back and I wrote to AFGN Brussels. And from that day to this, I never got a reply. The director of the time, I think, was a Swiss priest. And even though I didn't get any reply, Ken Sarawiwa himself, once when he was passing through Brussels, presented himself at the office of the Africa for the Justice Network. And he met the director and thanked him very much for having received the material. And I thought that was such a confirmation of who I was in the story, because I really was practically nobody. And Ken didn't tell me that he was going or anything like that, but he went, and and that director, I met him afterwards, and he was so pleased with that visit. He couldn't believe that the little organisation he was heading 
was now being thanked by a community from the grassroots. Now, there would be a turnover of directors <coughs> over time. So in the 20 years in between, with the had selected and have done quite good work on medicines in Africa, uh, pharmaceuticals from the West, food sovereignty, you know, and things like that. But oil and gas was something very unfamiliar. But over the years, now in their newsletters, there's a section on oil and gas. So 20 years later, I feel great about that, that the fear of putting it in is gone. And its importance, if it wasn't fear, that its importance has been recognised. And even in the last couple of months, AFGEN would have done work on oil and gas in Chad, and the church there was very careful about accepting oil and gas. The government promised everything, but the first money that they got went into strengthening the military. And they had to build a pipeline from Chad down to the Cameroonian coast, which was huge. But anyway, just a few weeks ago, a bishop in Chad spoke out against the oil industry. And within two weeks, he was on his plane home back to Italy after he a Comboni bishop who had been there. He had worked for 36 years. So you can imagine just making one statement on the radio brought about his expulsion. So my feeling for us who are activists is that the oil and gas industry is like a big octopus with many, many legs, and that any move at all that you make, you find yourself standing on a leg, but you don't know it. And suddenly, if the pressure in the, on the octopus from that leg is felt, then it reacts very quickly and very aggressively. So that's been borne out by the bishop from Chad just in very recent weeks. So Ken did the rounds with the diplomat, spoke with William Boyd, mm. did the diplomatic route. Yes. And tell me a bit about the activism on the ground in Ogoni then. There was a march in January. Yeah, well, he calls that in his book, A Month and a Day, he calls the 4th of January Liberation Day. And he himself hadn't, he, he didn't know how that would go. But, you know, Nigeria and Africa is very communitarian. So when you put out a call for a community to come out, it will come out. So he was extremely proud. You know, he says that nearly a half a million people, which is almost the total population of Agoni, came out on that day and of course they were standing on the leg of the octopus this was serious almost a half a million people is not a joke when all your oil wells are in a very confined space and your oil pipelines are going through the front and back of houses and villages so immediately there was alarm and I didn't know anything. Well, I would have been reading all this in the media now. In my, in my pile, this was the story that I had in my pile of little cutouts. And it says, too, that that was January. In February, Shell had a meeting to discuss the situation. Then March, they had the vigil. And then by May, he was beginning to be stopped from going to international conferences. For example, there was a conference in 93, which I think was, I don't know whether it was an Indigenous Peoples or a Human Rights Conference. He had gone to the first one in 92. He was trying to go to a similar one in the middle of Europe in 93. And I now had been going to his office 
occasionally between January and May, and this might even be before May, and his passport was taken off him and he was forbidden to travel. And he was now being arrested and brought in. And I would go to the office. I was completely ignorant of this kind of work. And I'd say, he's in detention or he's, you know, he has been arrested or he's not allowed to travel. And I kind of took it, you know, because 500 miles away, you know, you, you wouldn't know what was going on. Nor was I particularly engaged either because I was going on with my mandate and my mandate was to send material to Brussels for them to lobby and because this was not happening in Lagos I would be very far removed and anytime I went to the office he wouldn't necessarily tell me you know I was arrested last week or anything so in the May of that year that was the time that he wrote the book a month and a day he had had several arrests at that stage I think he had been both kind of threatened and mollycoddled by the, the government. You know, they had sent for him. Sometimes it was to the special services branch. Sometimes it was to meet the president. So he was being, both approaches were being made. So I remember when he went into detention, but again, I was relying on the fellas in the office in Lagos. So I just remember saying, that might have been the first time, and I don't have that note, I said... Um, is it okay to write him a note? So, because I didn't know whether you did or you didn't. So I did write him a note and I got a note back, which isn't in the collection, you know. So that would have been, and he wrote back immediately. So you sense when you have a good activist. One of the characteristics for me is the immediacy of response. Just as it happened now, I sent that man an email about an hour ago, hoping I wouldn't hear from him until next week. And within the hour, he's back on the phone. That immediately shows me that here's somebody with leadership potential and also is not going to miss any assistance or any push. Just straight back. And I guess if it stayed for an hour on the phone, he'd have stayed, you know. So I put it off until next Tuesday to talk again. But it's the same characteristics, you know, and... The real leader will respond very quickly and they must have the facility to do that either by speech or by writing. So you were never left in any doubt and as a supporter of a campaign, that's very important because you have to be brought along as well and if there's a few months go by and you hear nothing from them, you just give up, you said you're not... You know, you don't even, you're on to something else. I would still be reading the daily accounts with one excellent newspaper called The Guardian, Lagos. And it still is a top-flight paper there. And the interesting thing, I was reading about it the other day, the founder of that newspaper died last year. And his wife, Maiden, I taught her in school in Nigeria. And she's now a widow of this man who owned The Guardian. And she's now the owner and stewardess, if you like, of The Guardian newspaper. And The Guardian newspaper is what kept me sane during all those months because they had great journalists they were very meticulous they were very kind of brave and open and yet it was a, a very well respected newspaper so uh, people were afraid to touch it I think so I my bundle would keep on and I would know what was happening What were Shell doing with John? Around the time of the Ogoni Bill of Rights they started an activist organisation the movement for the survival of the Ogoni people. And they had a steering committee. 
And it's very interesting. In recent times, I was asking one of them, like, who was on the steering committee? And I was told that they had developed a very great system of organisation. Now you're talking about a half a million people. But African communities are great for little groups of this and little groups of that. Young people's group, elders group, political group, family group, everything. In the divisions of the area, there were hundreds of these groups grew up. And then maybe the main 12 or 14 of them had two delegates on the steering committee of MASUP. It's very interesting too, because politics was practically redundant because of military dictatorships, and every now and again there would be a promise of going back to civilian politics. And it happened briefly, and then it went bust again. The politicians didn't want to be left out of anything. They were also amongst the respected people in the community. So Ken, in his wisdom or otherwise, invited them too to take their place on the steering committee. And to remain relevant to the whole situation, they did. But the minute that politics was rumoured to be coming back, they scattered and left Mossop and became an enemy of Mossop. So just how early on the different interest groups become visible in a community. Rightly or wrongly, Sarawiwa took over the leadership of Mossop. He was elected on to it when he was... Because of very bad health, he was in hospital every now and again. Um, so he's de facto the leader of Mossop then. So the people were very kind of motivated and activated and suddenly confident as well because now they were seeing their name in overseas materials and their complaint was evidently of international interest. So one day in a village called Biara, which I was to visit later, the women were out on the hill, kind of hilly, it's not hilly, but they were digging with their machetes. And next comes along a shell contractor with its pipe to bury it. And the shell contractor was called Wilbrus, and it was covered by Nigerian army personnel. And the people just stood their ground and said, you're not coming any further. And there was an order given to shoot. And one young man was killed, shot in the back, and another woman lost her arm. And they gave up that day and went home. Wilbrus did. They withdrew. And they tried again the next day, and there was... Ten times more people there the next day. So that was the last day that Shell dug in a gummy.